Welcome back to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. You are listening to one of a series of lectures given by Caitlin Carl during our summer study through the Book of Mark. For Caitlin's lecture slides and additional study resources for the Book of Mark, please visit DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash Mark resources. So I want to start each week by saying our memory verse together. So I'm going to put it up on the screen and then we'll all say it together. Okay. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10:45. Thank you. Okay, so here's a quick look at where we're going tonight. I've divided the text into two parts. Preparation for ministry is the first 13 verses of chapter 1. And then ministry begins. We'll cover the remainder of our text this evening. If you want to open your Bibles to Mark 1, I'm going to move verse by verse through the text. But I'm not necessarily always going to read every verse. So it might be helpful if you have your Bible open throughout the lecture so that you can follow along as we go. And if you would please now stand. And I'm going to read the first 13 verses of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Thank you. You can have a seat. Well, Mark just jumps right in, doesn't he? Matthew's gospel gives you Jesus' genealogy, beginning with Abraham and working all the way up to Jesus. Luke gives us the birth narrative of both John the Baptist and Jesus, and John begins his gospel account with a theological dissertation about the deity of Jesus. But with Mark, there's no birth story, no genealogy, no setup. He just gives us a one-sentence intro. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As I'm sure you've noticed by now, Mark is a man of few words. He's very direct and to the point, and he's quick. 
And so we must reason that the words that he has chosen are purposeful. So through this opening, though this opening may be only one sentence, Mark packs a lot into it, and we're going to start by unpacking it. The beginning. To many of Mark's readers, this would have brought to mind the opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis, God creates the world for the first time. And here in Mark, God is beginning his recreation of the world, in a sense, as Jesus comes to usher in the kingdom of God and do away with the destruction that sin has ravaged on God's creation since the fall of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. This gospel that we are about to read is the good news of the fulfillment of God's promises. In the Old Testament, the term good news was often used to refer to God's saving intervention on behalf of his people. In Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to a broken-hearted people of God and assuring them that salvation is coming. The prophet says in chapter 40, verse 9, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And now as Mark opens his gospel, he's communicating this same message. Salvation is coming. In fact, it's here. And we're about to read all about it of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus's gospel. Jesus is good news. It's both about him and proclaimed by him. His name, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means to deliver or to rescue. In Matthew 1:21, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that his wife, Mary, is to have a son. And the angel instructs Joseph to name the boy Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To the name Jesus, Mark also adds Christ. Christ is an official title, and it is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. In Isaiah 61 verse 1, the prophet looks forward to the coming of this anointed one, or the Messiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. By attaching Christ to Jesus's name, Mark is telling us right from verse one who he believes Jesus to be that this is God's anointed one, the one that God long ago promised to send to crush the head of the serpent, if you think back to the Genesis 3.15 promise from last week, and to save God's people from their sins. And then to this already incredible title that he's given to Jesus, Mark adds one more thing, the Son of God. Not only is Jesus God's anointed one, he's his son. He is fully God, and fully man. And Mark will now spend the rest of his gospel defending these two claims, that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, come to usher in the kingdom of God here on earth, and that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. 
And to begin his defense, Mark takes us back to the Old Testament. Though he only names the prophet Isaiah, the quoted text is actually from two Old Testament books. It's from Isaiah and Malachi. The first half, Malachi 3 verse 1, can be read like this. Behold, I, God, send my messenger before your, or the Messiah's, face to prepare the Messiah's way. Verse 3 continues this thought, quoted from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And together with the text from Malachi 3, the voice can be understood to belong to the messenger who is preparing the way for the Messiah. And then, just like that, John's here. And he's baptizing in the wilderness. People are coming to him from all over. He's wearing crazy clothes. He's eating strange food. And he's telling about the one who is coming after him. Clearly, Mark is telling us that John is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. He is the messenger sent before the Messiah to prepare the way. So who is John? Well, Mark doesn't give us much information, as is pretty typical for Mark. But if we hop over to the Gospel of Luke, we can see even more clearly that John is the foretold messenger. In Luke 1, we read, And there appeared to him, and him is Zechariah, who is John's father. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." So this preparation that the Old Testament prophets are speaking of seems to be related to preparing the people. Not only is John to declare that the Lord, the Messiah, is coming, but he's also meant to urge the people to prepare themselves to be ready to meet him, to ready their hearts and their minds, providing the Lord with direct access or a straight path into their lives. Scripture often equates sin with crookedness. So John's call to repentance is a call to go from crooked to straight, to acknowledge the places in one's life that are not in line with God's will, to feel remorse for those areas and to commit to working towards straightening those paths. And John uses baptism as a symbol of repentance, of the desire to be cleansed of sin and to walk straightly. God is using John to call his people back to himself. But where did baptism come from? Many believe that we can trace its roots back to the Old Testament. In the days of Moses, God set forth very specific cleansing laws for the people to follow should they come into contact with any uncleanliness. This would be a leper or a corpse, for example. The priests also had very ritualistic cleansing required of them before they performed their priestly duties. 
And then in the intertestamental periods, which is a big word that just means the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's about a 400-year span. During this time, it's believed that the Jewish leaders took the cleansing laws from the law of Moses and um, adopted them to be a whole body baptism along with circumcision that was a way for Gentiles who desired to convert to Judaism to be cleansed of their Gentileness, which was an uncleanness, and brought into the fold of the children of God. John, by calling for all to come and be baptized, both Jew and Gentile, is telling the Jews that they are just as in need of cleansing as the Gentiles, that they too are filthy and must be set right before God. Their bloodline alone will not save them. So after we read about John's baptism, we read about his odd attire and diet. Let's note here that when John appeared on the scene, making all of these statements and calls to repentance, it had been roughly 400 years since the people had had a new word from the Lord. In the Old Testament, God spoke pretty consistently to his people through his priests and prophets. But during this last 400 years, he had been silent. John's strange diet was tied to his being in the wilderness— as the foods that he ate were those that could be found in the wild. But his attire here is meant to spark an image of the attire that the Old Testament prophets often wore, specifically Elisha, in whose spirit it was said that John would come. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read, Behold, I will send you Elisha the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And about Elisha's strange clothing, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we read, They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elisha, the Tishbite. So, Mark concludes this section on John the Baptist with John's words concerning the one for whom he is preparing the way. He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This speaks to the greatness of the one who is coming. In John's time, only the very lowliest servants were ever given the task of untying the sandals of their master. John is thus saying that in comparison to the one that's coming after him, there is an even greater division than between that of a master and his lowest slave. That's how much greater Jesus is than John. Although, just a little sneak preview, we see later in Mark that Jesus turns all of these power dynamics on their heads when he goes beyond removing the disciples' shoes and actually washes their feet. But not only is Jesus greater in majesty than John, he's greater in deed. John is baptizing with water, which is an outward sign that does nothing to the actual person besides symbolically cleansing him or her. Jesus, however, will baptize with the Holy Spirit, who has the power to actually effect true heart change. So we see that John, 
through his words, his actions, and his attire, is giving the people every indication that he is a messenger or a prophet sent from God, the first one in 400 years, and that the Messiah is coming and they need to be ready. And then he arrives. In verse 9, Jesus shows up. Mark doesn't give us much detail here. He simply states that Jesus came and was baptized by John. We know from the preceding verses that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why, then, did the sinless one need to be baptized? Theories abound. There's lots of discussion on this topic. But I think the most likely explanation is this, found in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus didn't have sin in himself, but he did have all of our sin laid on him. In stepping into the Jordan River that day, we see his resolution to fulfill the task to which the Father has called him, to take upon himself all of our filth, and lay down his life for the sheep. Men and women had been coming to John for months and washing their sins off in that water. Perhaps when Jesus willingly stepped in, he did the opposite. Instead of having anything to wash off, he took all of that sin that was floating around in the water upon himself. And he stepped out of the water to begin his long walk to the cross, where it would all be dealt with once and for all. At the very end of Mark, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So we also see that Jesus is setting an example for those who would come after him, as baptism continues to be an outward sign for believers today. And now we're introduced to what might be Mark's favorite word, immediately. As soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending like a dove, and he hears the voice of his father, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Remember what we read earlier in Isaiah 61 about God's promised Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So Jesus, having begun his ministry by willingly stepping into the Jordan River and being baptized, is now anointed with the Holy Spirit and commended by the audible voice of his heavenly Father expressing his delight in his Son, Jesus. The entire Godhead, the Trinity, all present together at the outset of the Son's ministry, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's worth noting here that this does not mean that Jesus was without the Holy Spirit prior to this moment. Jesus is fully God, part of that Holy Trinity, and has thus always had full access to the Holy Spirit. We can think of this as more of a formal or ceremonial receiving of the Spirit. And the appearance of the Spirit like a dove is often thought to be indicative of the way that Jesus would carry out his mission from the Father with meekness and purity. And then immediately, the same spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. Have you ever noticed that when you step out in faith into something that God is calling you to do, it seems that spiritual attack is often not too far behind? 
Well, it was no different for Jesus. Now that he has publicly affirmed his resolve to carry out God's rescue plan for his children, Satan wastes no time trying to get in the way. He lives to thwart, or at least try to thwart, God's plans. Unlike us, however, and unlike our first father, Adam, Jesus was able to perfectly resist the devil's taunts. When the serpent appeared to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he tempted them with promises of knowledge and of being like God. Instead of resisting the devil and fleeing temptation, they were lured in. And as a result, all of mankind was cursed. Conversely, when the devil appears to Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus does what Adam couldn't. He resists the lofty promises of Satan and holds fast to his calling as God's son. I also think that the difference in settings for these two temptations is intriguing. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden when they were confronted by the evil one. They were surrounded by the lush and perfect paradise that God had created, living in perfect fellowship with God their Father, and yet they fell. Jesus, on the other hand, is in the wilderness. Matthew's gospel tells us that he fasted for 40 days before he was tempted. So Jesus is in a very vulnerable and harsh place when Satan appears to him. Yet he still resists. How much greater is Jesus than we? And we see that even though he's in the wilderness, he's not alone. He has the Holy Spirit and there are angels ministering to him. Perhaps you're in a wilderness season right now. Perhaps your situation feels harsh and you feel exposed to the elements. Know that you are not alone. The same spirit that strengthened our Savior indwells and strengthens every believer. And we have a Savior who has walked the wilderness road and come out on the other side. He can empathize with you. Cry out to him tonight for deliverance, for comfort, and be strengthened in him. So having had his way prepared by John, been baptized, and been tempted, Jesus's ministry begins. And we'll look at two divisions here as well, Jesus's message and Jesus's authority. So it's unknown exactly how much time passes between Jesus's temptation in the wilderness and John the Baptist's arrest. Nevertheless, we see that after the arrest, Jesus enters Galilee and proclaims the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message is an echo of John's message. The thing that we've been waiting for, it's finally here. And repentance is what's required. So what is this kingdom of God? Well, it's a theme that we're going to see throughout the summer, and so we're going to talk more about it in future sessions. But for now, here's something brief. The kingdom of God, it's not a physically bound location like we often think of when we picture a kingdom. It's God's reign over his people and over the world. And Jesus is telling everyone that the time has come. God's reign is beginning to be seen, and the kingdom is being ushered in through Jesus himself. But this is only the beginning of the kingdom. One day, when Jesus comes again, God will establish fully his kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, and all who believe in Jesus and follow him will be invited in. 
Those who don't, however, will be separated from God forever, suffering in hell because they refused to submit to God's rule over their lives. If you tonight are not yet a member of the kingdom of God, know that Jesus' message is the same today. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And in 2 Corinthians 6, we read, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you have not yet made the decision to surrender your life to Jesus, if you haven't yet confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, today is the day to turn to him in faith and repentance. This is the single most important decision that you will ever make in your entire life. So come to your Savior. Receive him and receive the new life that he offers. If you have never made this decision and you want to talk about it, please reach out to your discussion leader, any Dayton Women in the Word team member, me or a friend. We would love to talk to you and pray with you. Don't wait. Come today. Okay, ladies, hold on to your hats, because if you thought that Mark was moving quickly already, things are about to really get going. So Jesus, um, after he goes into Galilee and proclaims the gospel, he's walking along the sea when he sees Simon, who is the same person as Peter, the one whose eyewitness accounts Mark used to write this very gospel, and Andrew, his brother, and they're fishing. He calls to them, inviting them to follow him and become fishers of men rather than fishers of fish. Just as they have been pulling fish out of the sea, they will now pull men out of the sea of their sin, calling them out of their lives of idolatry and death into a life of truth and light to worship the living God. So Jesus calls to these men, and Mark tells us that immediately they leave their nets and follow. Not too much further along, Jesus sees another set of brothers, James and John. He immediately calls to them, and they too walk away from their life, livelihood, and family to follow Jesus. Jesus' call to discipleship involves a radical commitment to him and to serving him. So I wonder, what is Jesus calling you away from so that you can more fully or wholeheartedly follow him and serve him today? Perhaps it's something small, like a bad habit or maybe a poor attitude about something that's going on. Or maybe it's as grand as these four disciples, and you can sense that the Lord is calling you out of your career, your current house, or maybe a relationship. Whatever it is, we must realize that as hard as it may be to walk away, Jesus is better. These disciples' immediate response to Jesus' call to follow him is really not so much a reflection on them as it is a testimony to the majesty and authority of the one who is calling them. We see that Jesus has authority over man, and he has the right, just as he did over the disciples, to call us into the service of his kingdom. Whether Jesus, whatever Jesus is calling you to, it is something higher and greater than where you currently are. So ask him for the courage and the strength to follow his call. Look at him and his greatness, not yourself and your limits, as you step out in faith and follow your limitless Savior. 
So we see that the now band of five sets out to Capernaum, where Jesus immediately enters a synagogue and begins teaching. And his teaching is markedly different from anything the people have ever heard before. I imagine it would be the difference between hearing a story secondhand versus firsthand. Even if they were teaching well, and we have many indications that they weren't even doing that, the Jewish leaders could only expound on the word of God. Jesus, on the other hand, he is the word of God, the ultimate authority on the subject. So every time that he speaks, it's straight from God. How different that must have been from the teaching the people had become accustomed to. It is no wonder that they were astonished. But not everyone's happy that Jesus, the very Son of God, is speaking truth in the synagogue. As he is teaching, a man with an unclean spirit cries out, questioning Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you ever been in a sermon or another situation where everybody is attentively listening and then something really unexpected happens? When that happens, the attention is diverted from the speaker and redirected to the distraction. So all eyes are now on the man, and Jesus' response is fierce. He rebukes the demon, commanding it to be silent and come out of the man. And the demon obeys. It has no choice, because Jesus has authority over the forces of evil, and they must obey him. It convulses the man, cries out with a loud voice, and comes out. And again, the crowd is amazed. What just happened? This man who teaches with an authority that we have never heard also expels demons with nothing more than a word from his mouth. Who is this man? And naturally, his fame spreads because this is not the kind of thing that people are going to keep quiet about. But Jesus didn't come for fame. And so immediately he leaves the synagogue with his disciples and they go to Simon and Andrew's house. Once inside, he is immediately informed that Simon's mother-in-law is ill with fever. Jesus goes to her, takes her by the hand, and lifts her up. The fever leaves her and she begins to serve him. Not only is the fever gone, but it seems that her full strength is immediately returned to the point that she serves her house guests. Mark gives such a brief account of this healing, and it's easy to kind of gloss over, but this is the first time in his gospel that we see Jesus exercise his authority over illness. And I think this healing is a really powerful picture of the healing that will one day come when Jesus returns. Just as Simon's mother-in-law was left temporarily unable to live in the way that she was designed to live by the fever that had overcome her body, so too creation, mankind included, is currently unable to function as it was intended to. But just as Jesus exercises his authority over the woman's illness, ridding her of its debilitating power and restoring her to health and function, so too will he one day exercise his authority over sin and death, ridding this world of its debilitating hold and restoring all of creation to the state for which it was originally created. Verses 32 and 33 of Mark chapter 1 tell us, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered at the door. 
The Jewish Sabbath ended at sundown, so they had to wait until then to bombard Jesus with their sick and oppressed. I can just imagine how the whisperings of what had happened mere hours beforehand in the synagogue had made its way through the town, and the people had been anxiously awaiting the sun's disappearance so they could see for themselves this authoritative miracle worker. And this is where we're introduced to the crowd that will be essentially ever-present from this point forward in Mark. In his great mercy, Jesus doesn't send them away. But he obliges and continues exercising his authority over illness and the forces of evil as he heals various diseases and expels many demons. And again, we see that he does not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So we've just seen that Jesus was probably up very late, healing the sick and casting out demons. Nevertheless, he rises early in the morning while it was still dark, and goes out to a desolate place to pray. Jesus was fully human. He was undoubtedly quite tired after the activity of the previous day, but he knew the importance of communion with his heavenly Father. So, exhausted though he was, he rises, departs, goes out, and prays. I would say that the time here is not necessarily prescriptive. We see Jesus pray at many different times, not only in the dark, early hours of the morning. He prays in different ways, by himself, with the disciples, in the morning, at night. He prays prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of distress. Our main takeaway should be this, Jesus prays. How incredible that the very Son of God himself felt this compelling need to pray. Do you share this compulsion and sense of need for communion with your Heavenly Father? I wonder if Simon and those who were with him interrupted Jesus' prayer when they found him and informed him that everyone is looking for him. Simon almost has an indignant air to his statement, not understanding why Jesus would be off by himself when there was likely much more healing and casting out of demons to be done. Maybe his house was already surrounded again with people eager to see Jesus at work. But Jesus will not be distracted from his main task to proclaim the gospel. And the troop goes throughout all of Galilee and Jesus continues to teach and cast out demons. While on his tour of Galilee, a leper comes to Jesus and implores him to make him clean. Lepers were individuals that were afflicted with a disease that caused severe, disfiguring skin sores. They were considered absolutely unclean and were complete social outcasts. If a clean person came into contact with a leper, that person too became unclean and outcast. As a result, they were not permitted to live within the city limits, and they often had to wear a bell around their necks and yell out, unclean, unclean wherever they went so that others could hear them coming from a long way off and maintain an appropriate distance. So not only was this man suffering from a painful disease, he was condemned to a living death with no human interaction, no financial means, and no access to the teachings in the synagogues and temple life. How great was Jesus's fame that even the utter outcasts had heard of him. And this leper boldly comes up to Jesus and acknowledges his ability to cleanse him if only Jesus is willing. He has faith based solely on the stories that he has heard of Jesus's power. 
and he submits himself to Jesus's authority and the right that Jesus has to say no. And here we get a glimpse at Jesus's emotions. He is moved with pity for this poor, poor man. He stretches out his hand, touches him, and again demonstrates his authority over illness as he says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy leaves him. Jesus does the unthinkable in touching this utterly unclean man. He should himself now be unclean. But Jesus came to overthrow the power of sin and death, and we see here a flow reversal, if you will. What used to be unclean plus clean is unclean. Becomes unclean plus clean is clean in Jesus Christ. Just as he entered into the sin-ridden Jordan River, he here connects with this uncleanliness, again confirming that he has come into the world to enter fully into our humanity, to take our sin upon himself and to deal with it once and for all. He does not shy away from the task, but embraces it, and lives are changed as a result. But we see Jesus' moments ago pity turn now to a stern warning to the newly clean man. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus wants the man to go to the priests so that he can be officially declared ceremonially clean according to the law of Moses and therefore brought back into the folds of society and normal life. He also wants the man to keep quiet about what has just occurred. Though we can't say with positivity the reason for Jesus's warning, I think we can see some clues both before and after this text. Earlier in this chapter, when the disciples seek out Jesus while he's praying earlier in the morning, he makes the statement, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Though Jesus doesn't shy away from healings and demon expulsions, it's not the chief purpose for which he came. Perhaps he charges the man not to say anything because he doesn't want to gain the reputation of miracle worker over and above preacher and teacher and messiah. We also see right here in verse 45 that the man did not heed Jesus's warning, but rather shared the news of what had happened to him with everyone. And the result? Jesus could no longer openly enter a town and had to stay out in the desolate places. Jesus's ministry seems stunted by this man's disobedience, and he has to continue his ministry in desolate places rather than the towns in which he originally taught. How often do we, well-intentioned as we may be, get in the way of the work that the Lord is trying to accomplish? Maybe there's even something in your life right now in which you're choosing your own way over the Lord's direction. Now, of course, Jesus is greater than any obstacle that we may unknowingly or knowingly place in front of him, and he will accomplish his good purposes, no matter how we may mess them up. But what heartache or frustrations might be avoided along the way if we heed the Lord's word from the outset? So where do you need to reroute, perhaps, tonight? And now we're on to chapter 2. And this opens with Jesus returning to Capernaum, and it does not go unnoticed. 
So many gather at the home where Jesus is that there was no room, not even at the door. Why isn't this the case in our churches today? And we see again that Jesus is preaching the word to them. A group of men have with them a paralytic, and when they see that they can't access Jesus through the house, they take extreme measures and they go up to the roof. They create an opening in what was probably a clay and straw roof, and they lower the paralytic down. When I see the great lengths that these men went through to place this paralyzed man in front of the healer to get him close to Jesus, I'm reminded of the story of Corey Ten Boom and her sister in a concentration camp during World War II and the great lengths that they went to to conceal their Bibles while they were continually searched so that they would not be confiscated by the guards. They so craved and needed that word, that source of shelter and comfort and strength that no measure seemed too great for them to ensure their access to God's word. And yet I, living in a world of immediate access to God's word at any time on whatever smart device is most handy at the moment, sometimes have days where I don't even pick it up. How precious to you is the nearness of your Savior. So Jesus' teaching is once again interrupted, this time not by a demon-possessed man, but by a hole in the roof through which a man is lowered down Excuse me, and lands right in front of him. But instead... Can you imagine? I just, the picture is great. But instead of being frustrated by this inconvenience, Jesus sees the faith of all the men involved in this desperate task and says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Does this seem odd to anybody else? I wonder what the men on top of the roof were thinking. I'm sure that this is not what they were hoping for when they had hatched their extravagant plan to place this invalid friend in front of the miracle worker. And I wonder what the man was thinking, lying there in front of Jesus, in front of this great crowd. That's great, but what about my legs? That's kind of what I was hoping for. Jesus's focus and mindset, however, is eternal in comparison to our very temporal view. He knows that the man's greatest need is not the ability to walk, but the forgiveness of his sins. Later in Mark, we will read, For it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Our need for spiritual healing is far greater than our need for physical wholeness. But Jesus' statement ruffles some feathers. The scribes who, interestingly, are sitting and presumably listening to Jesus' teaching— are questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, of course they're correct. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus is the very Son of God in their midst, yet they refuse to even entertain that that might be a possibility. Instead, he must be blaspheming, which means showing defiant irreverence for God, by claiming to do something that only God can do. Jesus immediately perceives their internal thoughts and he calls them out. He poses this question to them in verse nine. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now from a human perspective, it certainly seems easier to say your sins are forgiven. 
There's no way to positively confirm whether or not what you've said has come to pass, so saying it really seems like not a big deal. Telling a paralyzed man to get up and walk, however, is verifiable and also humanly impossible and thus the more difficult task. Jesus, of course, has the power to do both. And so to prove his authority to forgive sins, he also says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And of course, the man immediately picks up his bed and leaves. Jesus again demonstrates his authority over illness and now also his authority to forgive sins. And again, the crowd is amazed and glorifies God because they've never seen anything like this before. Jesus again goes out by the sea, and again we see him teaching. And here he sees Levi, a tax collector, who's also known as Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, who is sitting at his tax booth. Jesus simply says, follow me. And Levi gets up and follows him. So now Jesus has fishermen and a tax collector on his team. And tax collectors were viewed very poorly by the Jews. They were considered traitors to their people because they worked for the Romans, the oppressors. And yet Jesus calls him. It seems that Levi then invites Jesus back to his home for a meal along with his fellow tax collectors and other sinners. And the scribes and Pharisees are absolutely appalled. Again, Jesus is placing himself in close proximity with the unclean, risking that their filth might rub off on him. And yet we know that it is Jesus's mission for his purity to rub off on the filthy. Jesus hears the Jewish leaders asking his disciples about Jesus's questionable activity. And he replies with, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' message is not for those who think themselves worthy, like the scribes and the Pharisees, but it's for those who are unworthy, lost, and needy. Those who do not recognize their need to be saved cannot cry out for salvation to the Savior. Do you recognize your need for rescue, that you are needy and unable in yourself to be saved? that you are unclean and in need of the Savior's cleansing touch? Or perhaps do you think that you've earned your right to something that Jesus offers freely, that you can wash yourself off and make yourself clean? You can't earn it, sisters, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you scrub. We must stop trying and start recognizing our utter powerlessness in this matter. It is only in crying out to Jesus in our need that we can be healed of our sin sickness. So it seems that the novelty of Jesus' authority is maybe wearing off. And now that the awestruck state has passed, people are really starting to question some of his less than conventional behaviors and claims. First, it was his claim to have the authority to forgive sins. Then it was his choice to dine with tax collectors and sinners. And now in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's the fact that his disciples are not fasting the same way that John's disciples and the Pharisees do. As is quite typical for Jesus, he answers their question with a question. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus equates his disciples 
to friends of a bridegroom. How absurd and inappropriate it would be for these friends to refuse to feast with their friend, the bridegroom, as they rejoice with him over his marriage. Jesus' answer is then followed by the first very veiled hint at what is to come. He says the day is coming when the bridegroom will no longer be with them, and then it will be appropriate for them to fast again. Jesus is speaking here of his impending death, but no one really seems to pick up on this subtle statement, or at least if they did, it's not recorded here and they didn't say anything about it. But we should note, too, that Jesus is not discounting fasting altogether. We see that Jesus himself fasted in the wilderness before he was tempted by Satan. Rather, here he is commenting on the purpose of fasting, which is earnestly seeking the presence of God as being unnecessary when God himself is in their midst. Jesus then furthers his answer with two more illustrations, one about a patch of new cloth sewn onto an old garment, and one about new wine being poured into old wineskins. Literally, these illustrations are that you cannot put a patch of new, unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, because when you wash that garment, the new patch will shrink, and the garment will be in an even worse state. Similarly, new wine will continue to ferment after it is poured into a wineskin. And if that wineskin is old, it will burst, and both wine and wineskin will be lost. So what do these illustrations mean? While the Pharisees had roughly 613 commandments that they said needed to be followed, they added and added and added to God's law so superfluously that it seems one could barely move without being at risk of breaking one of them. Jesus is saying that he did not come to simply patch or fill anew the pharisaical laws and practices that had gone so far above and beyond the Mosaic law of God. No, the Pharisees' legalism and Jesus' gospel of grace are incompatible. I liked how one commentator put it. He said, Jesus' teaching on godly grace and forgiveness for sinners destroys the old cloth of the Pharisees it bursts open the old wineskins of their religion. And the chapter then ends with one more confrontation, and this time it's over another violation of the law. It is the Sabbath, and Jesus' disciples are plucking heads of grain as they walk through the grain fields, which is permissible by Old Testament law. But the Pharisees interpreted what the disciples were doing as harvesting, which was a form of work, and thus prohibited on the Sabbath. They question Jesus about this unlawful act, and Jesus answers them again with a question, this time referencing a passage from the Old Testament, with which the Pharisees should have been familiar. It's an example of a time when David and his men were in need and did what was not lawful by eating the bread of the presence, which only the priests were allowed to eat. The implication seems to be that in times of need, like now, when his disciples are hungry, things which are usually not lawful might be permissible. But the deeper issue here is not the legality of what they're doing, but rather the heart behind the command in the first place. In verse 27, Jesus gives us this important truth, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is God's gift to man, given to us as a means of spiritual and physical refreshment. The Sabbath is meant to be enjoyed, 
but the Pharisees, with all their rules and regulations, were turning what was meant to be a day of blessing into a burden. But how often do we do the same? How many times have we taken a gift from God and through our own doings turned it into a burden? Is there any extra requirement that you are putting on yourself today that is stealing away your joy in the Lord, that's diminishing his gifts and blessings to you? Won't you ask him to reveal it and then confess it to him and ask him to also remove it? And the chapter ends with Jesus' statement that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority over the Sabbath, just as he has authority over all creation. Who then are these Pharisees to find fault in him for allowing his disciples to pluck grain on this day? It is his day, and he has every right to permit his disciples to satisfy their hunger in this way. Okay, that was a bit of a whirlwind. But I want to try and wrap up each week by looking at our summer-long question, who is Jesus? So in these first few chap- two chapters of Mark, we see that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Lord. He's anointed by the Spirit, commended by the Father. He is tempted without sinning. He's a teacher. He's prayerful. He's compassionate. He sees our faith. He's the bridegroom. And he's the one who has authority over man, over the forces of evil, over illness, to forgive sins, and over the Sabbath. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord how great thou art. Thank you for your word and for what you have taught us here tonight. May it transform our hearts and our lives. Be with us as we go forth from here and bring us back together again next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so your homework is up on the screen. Read Mark 3 through 5 and use the study tool cross-referencing. Please do not feel like you need to look up every cross-reference in Mark 3 through 5. There are lots of them. Choose a couple to begin with, and then check out some more if you have the desire or the time. Your syllabus also says contemporary books. Mark has three of these, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. But please do not think that you need to read all three of these contemporary books as well as Mark 3 through 5. It's really more information for you. We just want you to know that they're there for your reference. And don't forget to check out the instructional video for this week's study tool at daytonwomeninthewordcom slash videos. That's it. Have a great night.